welcome to Knock On Podcast, where we bring you archery information and education that you can trust. Knock On was created as a way to bring all archers together, regardless of the brand you choose or the style of archery you shoot. Knock On Podcasting will deliver professional insights to the latest gear, proper shooting technique, along with high-level equipment setup and tuning. What's up, everybody? Good morning. If you're listening to this in the morning, my plan is to get this out this Friday so that everyone can at least have a little bit of their time at work pass by a little easier, and then you're going to get to enjoy the weekend. So that's the plan, and uh, this is podcast 156. I'm actually not videoing this podcast because it's 3 in the morning, and there's probably only going to be about 40 people watching it anyway, so... Uh, I'll spare myself the setup for that and we'll just jump into a bunch of stuff. This past weekend I was actually down in Oklahoma and did a little bit of kind of end of the year roundup, beginning of the year prep and I posted about it on my Instagram account and wanted to talk about that for just a little bit. I've actually got a really cool... um, He's got a ton of information about whitetails. I've got a guy that I met at the ATA show that sent me some really cool stuff that I've been reading, and uh, I think he's pretty dang legit, so I'm going to get him on the podcast, talk a little bit about um, some cool information regarding hunting numbers and several things like that, which I think is important for all of us to hear, Um, but while I was down in Oklahoma, I was kind of doing several things one of which um i was kind of getting some cameras out and putting them in mainly on food sources um before they weren't in food sources a lot of the cameras were kind of in areas travel corridors or bedding areas because i set them up there um before i had left uh that spot because i filled my tags so i kind of stuck a few cameras up Um, in areas where you can do a little bit of recon. I do that here in Iowa too when the season's over um, or after I filled my tags or a lot of times right before gun season. I'll actually take my cameras and put them out um, in the areas where I know deer are going to be either on those late season food sources or where they're going to be bedding a lot or congregating. And mainly just because this time of year, right around the end of January, 1st, February, I go out and look at those cards and kind of just take inventory of what bucks made it through season. Because I think it's a really, really important time um, for you to understand, you know, the overall health and deer numbers that you have. A lot of people, as soon as they're done hunting, they pack up and and that's that and they kind of go about. Uh, trying to take inventory once you know once the summer months come but um, I'm here to encourage you you know get those stealth cams out get them on trees try to take some inventory and you can use it for a lot of good things one um, I've actually used it to find sheds in the past there's been times where I've had deer coming and going into food sources and I'll see a buck one day comes in He's got both antlers, and then the next day he comes in and he's only got one. Um, And you can see kind of where they're coming from. A lot of times they'll be pretty patternable this time of year. 
and give you a really good heads up on where to start for shed hunting. Um, and then obviously just being able to to kind of see what other deer may have moved in your areas. A lot of times when I'm able to shoot a mature buck in my main area and you know it just seems like mature deer they claim their territory and mature bucks only associate with so many mature bucks during certain times and a lot of times when there's really prime habitat um, a dominant deer will claim that area and other deer won't move in there especially during the the rut time um, to take that over a lot of times there'll be more deer in an area especially if you have food in the late season or this time of year they're trying to find whatever food they can and when those bucks come into those areas just looking for that food if you do have it it's important because they're going to be there for one Um, but for two if they come to that area and they realize that there isn't a dominant buck that's claimed that area and marked up that area a lot of times if that habitat is better than what they're used to you can hold a new dominant deer in your area to replace that other one that you took out of there and that's been kind of the case for me over these last several years is i may only have you know two or three dominant deer throughout the farms that i hunt here in iowa and when i take those deer out a lot of times new deer will move into those areas which is really why i like to have a late season food source uh, because new deer will move into those areas just for the food and when they realize that they're kind of you know the only bull in the pasture so to speak they just a lot of times claim it as their own and i end up having deer move in that i don't have a lot of history with Um, and that's why a lot of the bucks that i shoot I may only have one or two trail cam pictures of them, and a lot of times it's from years prior where they've come kind of to that same food source during the late season. So they may have came at that time, but there was a a buck there that kind of wanted that area. So those deer kind of filtered out to the outskirts and almost, you know, almost were like satellite bucks to the best uh, cover and the best food source. They were almost outside of that. And they would come in when the dominant deer weren't protecting their local area. So I think it's an important time to, especially if you've taken mature deer out, you'll get to see some new deer that come in and kind of give you a really good idea of what's going to be there. The other thing is it's really, really a good time of year or probably, arguably, the most important time of year for supplying supplements supplementing with food or protein because right now even though you know their horns are coming off or they are off uh, a lot of times this time of year is when they're really ramping up their bodies and they're doing a lot of recovering you know it's a lot like it's really a lot like someone that does a marathon or you know you look at a bodybuilder that cuts weight and just really exerts himself or depletes himself fully for an event and then all of a sudden they have to fuel back up and and replenish that body so that they can start to grow again and the bucks are doing the same thing right now 
even though their horns are coming off, a lot of times they're looking for the most valuable, nutrient-rich food source right now. And if your place is limited on what that is, then having um, some type of a protein pellet or some type of a supplementation is they are going to hit it really hard right now. Um, and a lot of times they'll feed hard on it right now. You'll probably go through a lot of it if you're someone that invests in that. Um, but then it'll also taper down um, more and more and more as they build their bodies back up. And as their horns mature, um, they'll get less and less on that. They'll take advantage of natural uh, food sources as well. So once spring comes and a lot of those, um, a lot of the early growth happens they really like to take advantage of that fresh browse and they'll you know they'll hit that hard because they've been waiting for it and you know it's a lot it's like it's like if you haven't had um i'm a big i'm a clean eater so a lot of times when i'm eating clean and all of a sudden i have to go weeks and weeks without vegetables that's really what i want to hit the hardest and that's uh same thing following hunting season i'm kind of a lot of times my camp food is kind of limited to things that i can put in my pack or things that i can cook on the grill pretty quick and i don't really go too deep into you know my vegetable count so a lot of times once summer or uh once the winter comes and i'm at the end of the deer season I just pound the vegetables, and if you're following any of my social media accounts, you'll notice that my vegetable uh, ratio to meat ratio is is pretty pretty heavily tilted towards the vegetable side right now. So I'm just trying to to ramp up my vitamins and minerals and uh, get as much of that as I can right now. And a lot of times these deer doing the same thing they'll take advantage of the food source that they have they'll probably pound that protein because it's easy and they're trying to stay warm they're trying to ramp their bodies up but then they're going to hit that browse once it comes in the springtime Um, so i'd really encourage you to get out there and do that i'm again going to be um, using the garland animal wellness repel tech it's a pellet um, there's so much information on this, and you can actually go to their website um, if you want to read more about it. Um, you know, it's it's an awesome product, and I've done several um, I've done several different podcasts about this. EJ's been on, um, who is kind of um, the brains behind how many different um, versions of this supplement has came out and there's several um, there's several different ones there's a mineral that's awesome um, but there's also um, a liquid that you can pour out which is awesome and then there's uh, the feed itself which the feed is what I'm focusing on the most right now, the mineral works really, really well. Um, throughout the summer, you'll see them just really hit those minerals. The liquid version is awesome, comes in a little pouch. Um, but from the feed aspect, if you go to garlandanimalwellness.com, you'll be able to kind of look at some of the products. 
Um, I'm not going to go into detail about them right now just because we've, we've kind of uh, talked a little bit about that in the past. But I'm going to focus on the Repel Tech version. And the Repel Tech is, um, it's got a proprietary, uh, I guess it would, it's not a material, I'm used to archery terms, but it's a proprietary, I guess, additive um, that really helps in repelling, or there's some, actually there's some studies now that I've seen um, that Preston sent me where they've actually documented how many um, how well it's worked against ticks and other biting insects um, it's pretty staggering and I might get I might see if I can get Preston to come on and talk a little bit about that but um, we really I've got a lease down in Oklahoma with a couple friends and we're all investing in um, having this out we did it last year we saw huge benefits from um, not only antler growth, but just the really the size of the animals and the quality, and then also just um, the overall health of them and the amount of fawns too. If you're someone who has a place where you're trying to up your deer quantities, I can tell you, especially if you've been if you're in a place where you went through like EHD in the past, um, it's. A lot of people are worried about their bucks and several years ago when EHD hit this county that I'm in very, very hard, I was one of the first to rebound out of that EHD and I give credit to two things regarding that. One is um, I really don't go crazy on the numbers of does that I shoot. Uh, A lot of people are you know they're huge into management and i think that at times they almost go overboard on their management numbers and go overboard on their what they try to get for a ratio for buck to doe ratios um and i know i've talked to bill winky several times about this because in his area they went through this several years ago where a lot of people really focused on the qdma they did a lot of buck and doe ratio number counts and they really tried to get those doe numbers down and they did it to better the quality of their hunting and have you know more mature bucks and have more opportunity of big bucks um, but the problem is when the EHD happened and those numbers got cut down severely because they didn't have the doe numbers obviously the fawn crop is less too in my area um, I normally really bounce around for my doe tags. I don't, I don't just go crazy in one area for my does. I feel like, personally, I'm not a deer scientist, so I can't. This could totally be non-scientific, but I just feel like it. If you, you know, for example, if you have a late season food source and you've got ten does that are coming there all the time, and if you go out and fill five or six doe tags in that one. Uh, spot I really feel like it disrupts the pecking order of you know the overall I guess dynamics of that deer herd Um, I feel like you know I like to shoot the does that are the most leery and the ones that are the most cautious and if there's ones that are super um, who are always on edge about either 
being in a blind or always just snorting and stopping for no reason like those will be the does that are high on my priority um, just because they're educating the rest of the herd but the other ones you know I try to take maybe one or two does from one place and then I'll travel a ways to take that next doe or go to a different public ground or if another friend of mine says he's got a lot of does um, I'll bounce around and what happened was when the EHD hit and a lot of deer were dead I still had probably the highest um, kind of numbers of does in my general area just simply because I really was um, the one who hunted them the least and what happened was I was able to have um, and I supplemented following EHD even though the deer numbers were down I supplemented as soon as the hunting season was over and tried for the deer that did make it through because remember even with EHD if you're battling that some deer do overcome the EHD and they fight it and they'll be they'll look very skinny they'll lose their horns early the does may be skinny and again you know right now um, for example it was like three degrees this morning when I went out and uh, jumped in my hot tub and if you're a deer that's been struggling and fighting sickness and trying to battle off and make it through uh, the elements and now you're you know you don't have much body fat or you're not producing much body core temperature from the type of food that you're eating and you're skinny like that obviously this is a very tough day or a tough week to be out there um, if you're up in the north so by supplementing now you're able to really help the health and even though you're not you're not going to be hunting over it you're probably you know arguably some of the deer may not even be on your area they may leave um, but again if you want to help your overall herd and your numbers this is how you do it it's an investment um, so many people invest you know I would say arguably um, you know this is probably more important overall to your deer than putting putting in food plots I've got a lot of places where I had no food plots and I was able to still uh, harvest deer without having to be on a food plot just kind of going old school with it finding travel areas um, waiting for the right time of the rut so you can do some calling um, getting in the bedding areas or transition areas you know hunting them that way without the food I would say um, you know consider that based on the type of property you have if if several of your neighbors are you know putting the food plots in and your area is more of a bedding type area you may be better off trying to focus on getting some supplementation closer to that bedding area right now. You're going to have an easier job taking inventory, uh, and you're also going to have um, the deer are going to enjoy traveling less distance to and from their bedding to their food as well. Um, when it comes to, while I'm on the subject, when it comes to the the, how I put it out with any type of a protein you don't really you don't want it to get wet so snow is going to be a problem rain will be a problem putting it on the ground a lot of times it'll go to waste um, you know coyotes will come and, and piss in it and stuff um, so I've actually got um, there's there's two different feeders that I have 
Um, and it really, what you have will depend on how frequently you're able to get out there. Um, I invested two years ago in a couple of the big 750 pound redneck bulk feeders. It's just a plastic feeder with four spouts. Um, it took, it took probably a month for the deer to really get comfortable with it, especially the mature deer. Um, but when I first put it out, I put it out in the summertime, the very first time I used it. And because the bucks have other food sources as a good option, they were a lot less likely to, to become comfortable right away with that. If you do it now, regardless of what you put the protein in uh, um, or feed, especially if it's good feed that, that they're going to like, they, they tend to really know what you're putting out and they know the quality. Um, you know, some of these products that are just a bunch of fillers, you know, corn doesn't have much um, value to it. Um, a lot, you know, especially a lot of these attractants that are mainly rice brands, um, they're just, they don't necessarily have the right, um, percentages for that. Um, so those really aren't the best. So do a little bit of research on what you're going to put out there, but you put it in a bulk feeder this time of year and they're going to come to it. You know, they just, their guards are down a little bit. They'll get way more likely to come to it. And again, if you've opened up a gap in your whole herd by taking out that mature buck a lot of times if you're supplying really good food right now you might have a big deer that has came into your area just to winter could end up staying there but the does are going to take advantage of that too and it's important because the does really need to ramp their health up because right now they're obviously growing the fawns and it's going to be really important that they produce really good quality milk too. What you'll find is if you're um, if you're actually supplementing your deer um, throughout the winter time, your numbers of multiple fawns will be higher, and that is a big part of why I rebounded so heavily and so quickly from the EHD year. A lot of my neighbors struggled, um, and I say neighbors, I'm talking friends that are in my area within 50 miles of me that had deer die off the same. Um, I know one of my buddies had a farm uh, about 30 miles away and he has struggled for almost four years to five years now. Whereas my doe numbers, even though I lost, um, and just to give you an idea, um, if I add up the three different farms that I, that I hunt, um, it's roughly, if I add up all three, um, and some of them I don't, ha I don't only get to hunt myself, but uh, it's about 600 acres. And over those 600 acres, um, I found, I think, just under two dozen dead deer during that year. Um, so that's a lot. It's a ton. Um, so the deer came to the food. You know, I supplemented right away. Um, and I was able to, I was able to have two mature deer on on two of the farms that next year, which was lucky. Um, I shot one. Um, that was the one that I called Big Boy. I shot him, and I actually believe that that deer. Um, I'm, I forget what season that was on. If you want to go back and watch it, but it was a deer that I nicknamed Big Boy. Um, but he actually went down in horn size. 
um, and down dramatically in body size as well because I really feel like he had got the EHD but fought through it through the winter time. He lost one of his horns early, um, which is another indicator that he was really struggling to maintain his health. Um, so I was supplementing as soon as the season was over. Technically, I was supplementing as soon as I was done hunting uh, before the season was over. And he ended up making it through. I got him the next year, and I only shot one deer that year, um, one buck, just because of the numbers. But again, and I did not shoot any does that year either, because again, I wanted to supplement the does. I wanted the does to have multiple fawns, which they did. And you know, with just me doing that, because my neighbors, um, the gun hunting groups around me, they just didn't even look at that. They had the same number of deer hanging in their barns uh, after the first gun seasons. And I really was the only one who shot less than what I could have, but I knew that it was important for the herd. So get your cameras out, take some inventory. You might get to see a new buck or two. Um, Think about um, supplementing with food. If you're not interested in supplementing with food, even keeping your cameras out and getting in some type of a food out right now is going to let you be more likely to find sheds because you're going to keep deer closer to a food source. And again, you'll be able to use those cameras um, for if you see deer come in one day with both horns and then the next day they come in and it has one, you'll know that there's a horn within walking distance to get to, um, which works really, really well. Uh, The other thing I was doing was I was down there kind of prepping for some hog hunting. I went down with Sharon. We had a fun little trip. Um, We got out and did, I carried my bow with me while we walked around and did these maintenance things that I'm talking about. I wasn't super focused on just shooting hogs. I was more focused on kind of doing some of this upkeep stuff. Um, Again, this is the time of year where try to get stands down. Um, if it's not a stand that you take down, even loosening the straps slightly on the stands um, is important. Or if it's a stand that you leave in the tree, um, you know, which try to always watch that. That's how people get hurt, leaving a tree, stand in a tree and a pack rat chews on a strap or something. And next time you get in, it falls. So be careful of that. Taking covers off blinds. Um, like my soft-sided blinds took the covers off, um, that sort of thing. So a really good time of year to prep. Um, I also kind of um, got some spot and stock areas primed up for hogs because here in a couple weeks, I'm actually going to be doing a really cool hunt um, down there with uh, my buddies at Traeger um, and um, also my buddy Andy is going to be coming uh and then it's going to be a good time so we're going to be doing that and then i'll also be filming a i got asked which i'm super thankful for got asked to actually film a um little info commercial for traeger so i'm going to be down there filming for traeger grills and specifically to the outdoor market and going to be uh doing a little commercial Uh, involving some wild game cooking maybe it's probably going to be like a short film as well uh, which will be pretty cool a knock to fork slash traeger be more traeger slash knock to fork um, 
info commercial slash short film be pretty cool so look out for that um, to come in a couple weeks next thing is um, today is the 2nd of February Um, next week is the Western Expo in Utah and Sharon and I are going to be out there uh, for that we're going to fly out to hang out with um, Adam Greentree and Kim Greentree uh, to we're going to be in the Hoyt booth some and then also I'm going to be doing some cooking I'm going to take I'm actually taking before the show starts on that Wednesday I'm going to be doing some culinary classes um, and then the, sh- the show will start I'm not sure how much I'll be there because I am going to be doing some culinary classes while I'm out there and I'm also going to be um, doing some cooking um, for a Traeger event Friday night but Friday I'm going to be doing a Gritty Bowman podcast somewhere around four o'clock I believe followed by um, heading into the Hoyt booth um, for the last few hours of the show on Friday so if you're going to the Western Expo I'll be there for sure Friday um, First with the Gritty Bowman on stage podcasting and then in the Hoyt booth. So please come by and uh, say hi. That would be awesome. Um, Now I'm going to get in a few questions here that I've got. Um, They're in no particular order, but these are ones that I thought I would answer uh, this morning mainly because every day when I get in my hot tub to kind of get my muscles warmed up, um, normally following that I'd work out, but today I podcasted for you. Um, I normally go through and answer some questions when I can um, through social media or private messages. One thing I want to say is if you're sending me a private message about what arrow to choose, I'm going to actually stop answering those because... I feel like this is one of the most basic things that you guys should be able to learn. Um, If you're a follower, you need to get used to simple things like um, how to select um, an arrow. So all you have to do is go to Easton Archery, uh, Easton Archery, dot com forward slash shaft dash selector forward slash okay and that's going to take you right to an easton arrow shaft selector chart so all you have to know to do this is you're going to need to know uh pretty much your bow it's going to ask you a rating um whether you have a recurve bow or pretty much the speed of your bow Um, And really, the speed of your bow is relative to the hardness of the cam, meaning how aggressive the cam is. So most of us out there are going to select the bottom one, which is um, ATA, or an Archery Trade Association speed rating of 300 to 340 feet per second. Um, Then you're going to go and you're going to select your draw weight. So let's select what draw weight you're going to use. For me, I'm going to just, well, for you, let's just say we're going to select 65 to 70 pounds. From there, go ahead and you're going to try to determine what your arrow cut length is. The length of your arrow is more important um, 
than the actual draw length because um, if your draw length's 31 but you cut your arrow at 31, that's going to be a completely different arrow versus if you have a little bit of an overdraw and you're actually shooting a 28-inch arrow. So, for example, my arrow is is right at 29 inches even though I'm a 31-inch draw. Why is that? Because um, draw length is measured um, pretty much from the pivot point of the bow. And that, for any of you out there listening, I'm sure based on the type of bows you're shooting, Matthews, PSE, Hoyts, it's going to be where your hand touches the riser. Um, so that's the pivot point of the bow. And what they do is for um, for proper draw length, it's measured 1.75 inches in front of that pivot point. So if your um, to your pivot point is 29 inches, your true draw length um, for that bow is actually a 30 point. 7.5 so a 30 and 3 quarter inch draw um, so you can see I cut I cut my arrows um, right at about um, right in front of my burger button hole my arrow rest um, I shoot an elevate arrow rest knock on elevate arrow rest my arrow rest is behind the riser just a little bit um, and I cut my arrows so that I have about an inch and a half or so uh, clearance in front of the arrow rest more or less I want my broadhead in front of my hand. So that's why I cut my arrows just forward of the little hole that your arrow rest screws into. So for me, my arrows are 29 inches, even though I'm a 31 inch draw or slightly less for my hunting bows. But uh, so a 21 inch arrow or 29 inch arrow. So I've got those three things my speed of my bow the poundage of my bow, my arrow cut length, you click the button that says search and it'll show you a whole bunch of different arrows and it'll also show you the different spine options. Sometimes you may have the options of multiple spines uh, within that arrow. Now keep in mind this is pretty much basing your um, your selection on really a hundred grain point um, so, or in a standard insert. So if you're going to add in a heavier insert, or if you shoot a heavier, like say you shoot a 125 or 150 grain head, then you're going to probably want to consider, um, a stiffer spine. And what you could do easily to help you know what that next spine is, is if you've selected 65 to 70 pounds, um, and let's just say you're shooting exactly 70 pounds. I would go ahead and then just backtrack on the website and then instead of clicking the 65 to 70 pounds, click the 70 to 76 pounds and do a search for that because it'll show you if all of a sudden you realize, okay, regardless of which of the two I do, I'm still sitting in the same spine size of a 300 um, then that's telling you 100% that that spine's going to work out perfect for you. If all of a sudden you went from a 340 now to a 300, then that's telling you you're kind of on the bubble between those two shafts. So if you're going to shoot a heavy insert or if you're going to shoot a heavier broadhead, then you're going to want to favor the stiffer side. So try to do me a favor. Don't ask me what arrow spine you need to buy. 
you know, it's one thing if you ask me the question specifically about, you know, I'm going to be shooting FIDA only events. I'm debating between arrow A or arrow B. Like that, for example, is possibly something I would dive into. But if you're just asking me what arrow to buy, just go on there and look, learn to look at an arrow chart. Um, I'm not going to answer those anymore. So, um, but the first question here is from F underscore ES3LA. I'm not sure what all that means, but um, it just says he's have a question for me. He's um, going to be purchasing a new bow and he's debating between 60 or 70 pounds. Um, I currently shoot 70 pounds, close to 70 pounds, um, and I can shoot about 15 to 20 arrows before I start to feel fatigued. I have a 26 inch draw length as well. Do you think 60 pounds will be sufficient enough uh, for hunting with that draw weight, or should I stick um, to what I have in poundage and just try to shoot more? looking for some advice. So this is a pretty good question because there's a lot of people that want to know what is sufficient pulling weight for hunting. And, you know, honestly, there's, depending on the type of broadhead you want to choose and depending on the type of distance you're wanting to shoot, kind of are the factors with this. Um, If you're not partial to any broadhead, and you're willing to shoot a fixed blade, um, a cut on impact fixed blade, or something that has a smaller cutting diameter for a fixed blade, then shooting lower poundage will be fine. Um, you know, my wife, my boy, both of them shoot about 40 pounds. Harry might be up to 45 pounds now. Um, they don't practice a lot, they practice more with me in the summertime, and they'll practice then. So when they first start shooting in the summer or in the spring, if they go turkey hunting, um, they're really not, they haven't shot a lot. So, you know, they're in the same boat. They can shoot 15, 20 arrows. They start to fatigue, start to wear out. Um, Now, I can tell you I probably could easily bump their weight up five more pounds. But instead of shooting 20 or 25 arrows, they may only shoot 10 arrows before they start to break down and form and get tired. So if you're able to shoot more closer to season, then I would say maybe have a little bit more weight and just work your way up to shooting that weight. Um, But, and especially if you're wanting to shoot a a mechanical head, um, you know, for example, if you're wanting to shoot like a, a larger diameter mechanical head, you're going to need that extra that extra poundage. Also, if you're someone that wants to shoot a little bit more distance, you know, if you're wanting to, if you're out west and you know that you're going to probably have shots that are over 40 yards, then having a bow that's closer to 70 pounds is definitely going to be something that you want to consider versus this, you know, a lower poundage bow. However, there's a fine line there between what you can shoot in order to have the best penetration versus what you can shoot accurately the best. Because just like with um, a general rule of thumb that I have is, um, you know, your overall distance, your accuracy efficiency when in relation to distance, I feel like is about half um, 
in a hunting moment as what it is during a practice moment. I feel like nerves, you know, getting adrenalized. Some people, they struggle pulling their bow back when they're adrenalized. Uh, you know, you've got nerves, so you're less steady. Um, I feel like all that factors in. So if you're barely able to maintain that weight, uh, during practice, you're certainly not going to be able to do it when you're in the moment of truth and when you're you're nervous. So just do a reality check. If that's you, then I would say the lower poundage for sure is going to be better. Um, or if you're totally saying, you know, I live in Texas, we hunt on feeders a lot, you know, we, most of our shots are 20 to 25 yards, you know, 60 pounds is going to totally be good. Um I can tell you that you'll be fine. But if you're out west, you know you might have to take a 40 or 50 yard shot or longer. Um, 70 pounds is going to be important um, because, again, you're going to want to maintain that energy at those longer distances. Um, but, you know, when it comes to what bow to buy, if you do know that you're going to be favoring that lower poundage, try to find a bow that maxes out around that poundage simply because like i've talked about in the past string tension starts to become important for not only um efficiency of you know how the arrow is coming off the string but also noise as well um you'll have less string oscillation if the limbs are keeping that string tighter um and then also any type of facial pressure or variation that you put on string pressure because of your release hand angle um, is better when the string has more tension at full draw. So I would say, you know, another thing too is, you know, you're asking me re- whether you should have a 60 or a 70. You can request a 65 pound max bow. Um, for example, um, the Hoyts, and actually I'm going to be getting, um, I've got one ordered. It's not here yet, but um, I'm actually looking forward to this because. I hadn't really talked about it, but I know there's a lot of you out there that um, are on a budget, and I get a lot of questions about that. So um, I've actually ordered a Hoyt Power Max, um, which should be um, coming here pretty soon. I'm going to do a setup and a build on the Power Max, and I'm actually going to do a hunt with it as well. Um, just to show you how it is and how, if you're on a budget, how you can build it. Um, but yeah, don't be afraid um, to you know get a custom build. Um, you can get, for example, you can buy a 55 to 65 pound uh, bow for the Power Max if you're on a budget. You can do the same thing for some of the other bows. Um, I'm, I'm a Hoyt guy, so I'm talking specific to Hoyt. Um, but you can buy the 65-pound max draw weight. And I think for a lot of people, that's a really smart choice. If you want an extra few pounds, you can add a few extra twists to your cables. Make sure you add, you know, you could probably add about four or five twists to your cables get an extra couple pounds just make sure you get your synchronization back Um, but you're going to get an extra couple peak pounds there if for some reason if you do choose your lower weight simply because you can practice more you can practice more comfortably um then you know and i know right now with like 
Joe Rogan, he's doing a lot of uh, he's doing a lot of shooting on his techno hunt. He's geeked out about his techno hunt, so he can't shoot um, he can't shoot the bow that I built for him, codenamed Black Mamba. He can't shoot that thing on techno hunt because it'll actually blow through his screen. <laughs> it'll punch holes through his screen. So he's having to shoot um, a lighter bow, um, which I really feel like is good for him because he's able to shoot more arrows um, really with less wear and tear on his joints by having a lower poundage pull. Now, granted, it's still a 70-pound bow, but it's it's less, 14 pounds less weight than what he's hunting with. But it's letting him shoot more repetitions uh, and get more high quality practice in versus shorter period uh, of time on high quality practice. So hopefully that helps you out, man. Uh, appreciate the question. Next question here is from jrudy82. He sent me a very, very long message pretty much talking about the fact that he bought a brand new RX-1. Uh, his buddy who is a good shooter, uh, can shoot perfect bullet holes with it, but he is getting a left tear. Um, and so they set the bow up, they made a bunch of adjustments, he was still getting the tear, so in the end they just tore it back down, set it back up from scratch again, um, and his one buddy can just shoot a bullet hole with it, um, but he's just saying, when I'd shoot, um, I'm right back to a bad tear. Um, is this because I'm used to the old big wooden grips or have I mysteriously developed a bad habit? Um, he was able to mimic my tear by torquing the bow. I've only shot it a hundred times or so, but really need some suggestions. So yeah, obviously this is pretty common with people's bows that I set up. Honestly, um, I'll set up their bow. I can get a perfect tear. It'll shoot good. Then I give it to someone else and their tear is different. And it, yes, it's because of hand position. You know, for the longest time, um, what I hated about my Matthews bows when I worked there was the original Matthews grip literally felt like you were holding. It felt like you took a Coke can and like as you were holding it, an empty one, you squeeze your thumb and your index finger together about halfway around the can. And then the rest of the can was what the bow grip felt like. It was just this big boat anchor of wood in your hand. And, you know, I was, I shouldn't say I'm the first, but what I would do is take a big old, my big old horse rasp from back when uh, we had our, our big family horse farm and had all my my hooving tools my farrier tools in a box and i'd get that big rasp out and just start hauling big chunks of wood off that thing to fit to thin it down because i actually would get crazy tears with that grip however some people would get the best tears with that grip and i couldn't mimic mimic it versus once I went to a narrow grip, I was able to get my arrow shaft down the center of my riser again. I was able to get good tears. I much preferred that narrower grip. So yes, if you're used to those big old grips, you're probably used to having a lot of your hand and your you know your grip chunked around or your hand chunked around that grip and wrapped around where you're starting to twist that bow 
Uh, and a lot of times when people want to take their fingers and wrap them around the front of the grip, they're going to start to get that tear that you're talking about. So yes, learning how to grip properly is important. And I'm not sure um, if I covered it on a YouTube video, but I've talked many times about bow grip position and keeping the grip between pretty much the concave part of your hand between your thumb and your index finger right in that saddle you want the top of the grip in that saddle there or you know you want to essentially press that saddle up against the bottom of um, your riser shelf or the top of your grip and then you want to lean your lean your palm down so that the grip is touching your palm right where your main thumb bone connects into your wrist. Now if you look right there too and you slowly, if you move your pinky and your, and your thumb, so take your pinky and your thumb, move them together. As you move them together, you're going to see this big crease um, pretty much at the base of your thumb pad, um, which will have a crease. And it's essentially right at the It'll come to a point right at the center um, of your hand, at the bottom of your hand, right where it connects to your wrist. Now that that main line, that main wrinkle or fold in your skin that starts at the center of the base of your wrist and then goes up to that cradle um, between your thumb and your index finger, that is what's called the lifeline of your hand. Now, if you take a pen and you draw from the bottom center of your pad where that lifeline starts and follow that lifeline all the way up to where it stops, it's probably not going to be exactly center between your thumb and your index finger. It's probably going to favor your index finger just a little bit. But anyway, that's your lifeline. What's important is... When you grip your bow, you don't ever want your bow grip to cross that lifeline over to the side of your hand that has your middle finger, ring finger, pinky finger. Essentially, you want your grip from between the saddle, um, the saddle between your thumb and your index finger. You want to lean on that grip to where it essentially touches the bottom left edge of that line you just drew on your hand. If you can do that um, and keep it there, you're going to have way better tuning and you're also going to have to keep that hand relaxed while you're at full draw. Don't try to squeeze your hand to where you're touching your fingers around the grip. You want to have a relaxed hand. Now one thing that you can um, do is um, you can actually take a picture of yourself while you're shooting have someone take a picture of your grip if when you're gripping the bow if you're a right-handed shooter and the camera is taking a picture of your grip um, from your right side facing you so essentially they're going to be um, if you're at full draw they're going to be safely at about two o'clock um, in front of your bow grip and have them take a picture if you can see that 
lifeline, that line that I just told you, if you can see that line peeking out around that side of the grip from that camera photo, then what that's telling me is you're actually turning your thumb too far up and you're putting too much cross palm on the bow grip. And that's going to cause you problems. So work on that. Um, there's actually another question here um, that I saw the other day, which I actually didn't screenshot. Um, so I can't give credit to who asked it. But um, there was a, a question about uh, hand position on the grip, whether to shoot a high wrist or low a low wrist. So a high wrist would mean that you've got more pressure on the top part of the bow grip while you're at full draw, and essentially you're almost lifting the base of the heel of your palm. You're almost lifting that slightly off the grip. A lot of Olympic-style recurve shooters shoot like this, um, or they were coached this way for years and years and years. That's why they have these very high-wrist bow grips built. Um, I'm not a big fan of that. Um, so what I don't like about a high-risk position, now if you have a big clunky grip built like some of the recurve shooters have, um, they kind of build their grip to where their hand essentially just kind of fits in there. And even though they have a high wrist, the grip comes up to the bottom of that high wrist so that they are still maintaining pressure evenly on the bow handle. Now, um, on a low wrist uh, or on a standard low wrist grip where you're essentially pushing your heel down on the grip, um, I don't like to have more heel pressure than I do top pressure. I like to have even pressure um, from the cradle of my my hand where I talked about earlier between the thumb and the index finger from the cradle all the way down to the thumb pad um, where the your thumb connects into your wrist. I like even pressure there. I don't like it favoring the high wrist. And the reason I don't is because as you fatigue, the small bones and the small muscles, shouldn't say bones, but the small muscles um, in your wrist will start to fatigue and you can slowly start to change your grip position and what you'll find is you'll start to as you fatigue you're going to end up your your knuckles are going to start bending back to you and you're going to slowly start creeping into a neutral grip or a healing um, where you're applying heel pressure you're going to slowly do that as you fatigue and your bone alignment of your front arm and you know, is not going to be the same in that position as when you're shooting in the high wrist. I just don't feel like there's enough support in that high wrist position. The other thing too is keep in mind, um, you know, a lot of uh, recurve shooters are pulling a lot less peak weight, um, even though they have a good amount of holding weight. You know, they're pulling recurves that are up to 50 pounds max. Um, so the pull, the, their pulling weight is a lot different. Um, and a lot of times their amount of time at full draw is a lot different too. Watch a recurve shooter. When they pull back, they settle in, they're going through that clicker. It's gone. Um, it's not 
their shot timing is not near the amount of hold time as that compound shooters have. So the longer you're holding that fatigue in that front wrist when you're sitting in a high-risk position, it's going to slowly start, the hand's going to start to bend anyway. And as you change pressure on your grip, you're going to change impact point on the target. Um, or, you know, even if you just shoot through paper, you can see that different hand positions give you different paper tears. So essentially, you want to have the same thing each uh, and every time. Um, the next question here is from BLB8698. Um, it's just asking the question, um, thinking of going with an RX-1 or the RX-1 Ultra, I'm 5'9", 27-inch draw. What do you think is better for me? Um, and then he's also saying, can you also... Uh, mentioned the Hyperforce versus RX-1. So essentially these are three bows that he's talking about. Um, they're all the main, the new main bows for Hoyt. So um, we've got the RX-1, which is a carbon bow. Um, and that bow is uh, a little bit short. The, well, the RX-1 is a 32-inch bow. It's a little bit shorter um, than the Ultra. The Ultra is 35-inch axle to axle. Um, what I'm going to tell you is I really feel like since you're a 27-inch draw, um, I really think that you should go with that RX-1. And the reason I'm saying that is because you're a little bit shorter in stature, so the string angle is going to fit you a little bit better. It's going to be a little bit easier to, to carry and maneuver. Um, with the the smallest cam, you're actually going to be um, in the second to the last position in the smallest cam because the smallest cam goes from 24.5 to 28. Now, if you went to the Ultra, your only options are going to be um, the first cam, which is the smallest one, but you're actually going to be um, two positions further down um, in that module setting. So um, in other words, instead of you being closer to the end of that, you're going to be right dead in the middle of that cam, um, which I really feel like being closer to the max, I feel like gives me a little bit better wall. It's far better on this Hyper ZT cam um, than any other Hoyt cam of the past in regards to if you're in an A position versus a, the very last position on the cam, um, you're not going to see as much swing and efficiency or how that cam essentially feels as you pull it back. It's going to feel very similar to the same all the time. But I just feel like because of your draw length, you're going to get along well with the RX-1. Now, in saying that, um, the next part of your question was the, um, was, um, the Hyperforce. So the Hyperforce is essentially an aluminum version of the RX-1 carbon. So it's a, a slightly different, um, it's going to have a slightly different feel, mainly because, and I'm saying feel in regards to when the bow fires, mainly because um, carbon and aluminum are two different types of materials, and they're essentially they're going to have two different types of frequencies. It's no different than if you have if you have two stabilizers, if you get two 30-inch stabilizers, one's made of carbon, one's made out of aluminum, 
get an aluminum tube stabilizer or just a straight aluminum stabilizer and then get a straight carbon stabilizer. Um, even if you put some type of suppression device on the end, which would be similar to like, you know, the suppression, um, the, you know, limb suppressors that are on the Hoyts, if you take that and you kind of bang it on something or tap something on it, you're going to have two completely different feels because the residual vibration between the two are going to feel different. How the bow sets up is not really going to have a difference. How it sets up, the fact it can tune, all that stuff. Performance-wise, when it comes to shooting through a chronograph, um, you're going to find the same thing uh, between the two. The carbon is obviously very nice if you're in cold weather. For example, today, five degrees out. If I was hunting, went outside right now, tried to grab an aluminum bow, I would hate it. My hand would be frozen to the bone by the time I carried that thing to my stand. Um, and if I had to grab it while I was in the stand and hold on to it, if there were deer close and I had to hold on to it to be at the ready for a long period of time, um, I would definitely not like it. Um, the carbon, you won't have that. Now, the most important thing to you is what is your budget? Uh, if it doesn't matter what the cost is, then I would personally favor the carbon. But there's also been times where, um, you know, I haven't shot the carbon. Last year I shot an aluminum bow the entire season pretty much, and I got along really good with it. And again, I do that. Each year I try to shoot different models to favor people that have different budgets. Um, so again, I am going to shoot a Power Max some. Um, even though I've got a Redworks, I'm going to set up a Power Max and I'm going to shoot it for all of you out there that are getting into archery because you're not going to be, well, I shouldn't say you're not able to afford, but some people aren't going to jump headfirst into archery like that. So um, hopefully... That answers your question. Um, let's see here. Stickman97 is asking, what causes target panic when shooting 3Ds? Meanwhile, I can shoot a spot face with nearly no breakdown in shooting form. Um, so that's just, essentially that's because target panic is a form of anxiety. Um, this is where I have a slight difference in opinion versus some people that are out there that are really focused on um, helping people with target panic right now. Target panic, if you're an archer and you've shot a lot of different forms of archery, um, what you'll find is target panic has very, very many um, forms different heads so to speak I always say it's you know this hundred headed dragon and it can uh, one of its evil heads can rear up at any time um, because some people have a target panic specific to a certain type of trigger some people have a target panic specific to a certain finger some people have target panic to a certain type of face some people have um target panic to a certain type of 3D target, some have it to a certain color, some have it to a certain location on the tar um, on the actual bale. Um, so 
target panic overall is a form of anxiety. It's a sudden fright or tear, uh, terror. Um, it's a fear. So it can come in different versions and it can come at different times. So um, what causes it on 3Ds while maybe not on, um, on a, a target space? It could be a couple things. One, it could be because on 3D targets, um, a lot of times people are aiming at a smaller object. They're trying to either shoot the 12 ring, they're trying to shoot, use another person in their group's arrow as a reference. For example, if someone stuffs um, their big old orange fletching right in the dead center of the 12 ring and someone's all of a sudden trying to aim smaller and hit that those fletchings so that they can too shoot a 12. A lot of times once people start to try to aim more, um, the focus draws away from the shot process and focuses more on aiming and a pretty much a static um, hold. And a lot of times that static hold translates later into freezing or freezing beneath the target. And when you're freezing beneath the target, your brain is pretty much telling you don't hit the trigger because you're not on the target. So then what you end up doing is because you're freezing off the target and your eyes are wanting to see the target, which is a big part of it, a lot of people don't realize that when you cover an object, your brain, because it knows that you want to hit the object, it also, it's fighting itself because it's wanting, it knows that wherever the pin is, that's where the arrow goes. So it's knowing, okay, my pin is not on the target, but yet when I cover it, now I can't see what you really want me to hold. So a lot of times people that don't embrace the floating motion of the pin, which in my opinion is the subconscious confirmation. Um, it's your subconscious's way of peeking to make sure that what you're wanting to hit is still there or still located there. Um, and your pin naturally floats just enough to where your brain can get that confirmation. But when you're perfectly still and you're froze underneath, you're you're in this you're almost stuck in this transition period of your one part of your brain knows if you hit the trigger, you're not going to hit the target because your pin is not on the target. But your other side of the body is saying, I really want to start squeezing my trigger. I want to hit, you know, I want to, I want my bow to go off. Um, so then you end up getting to this thing where you simultaneously raise the bow and hit the trigger at the same time to try to give this these two counterintuitive parts of your brain um i guess an equal amount of um you're kind of trying to meet them in the middle and most of the time that doesn't work so my advice to you is um one focus on not trying to aim as small on the 3d targets or bring them closer the other thing too is focusing less on score um, or try to put a, a dot on your 3D target that's the same size as the dot which your body is comfortable using. Um, for example, like um, with Joe Rogan, we actually um, 
put, you know, we, I ended up nicknaming it a bozo nose um, because Joe, um, a lot of times when he was holding, you know, he's judging his groups and he's saying, well, I don't feel like I'm grouping as good. But when you're aiming at a big silhouette target and if you're especially someone who's not really, um, I guess, super familiar with all the exact scoring locations of different types of 3D targets, then essentially... Unless there's one arrow in there with a big light lit up knock where you're able to aim, if you're just shooting at a silhouette all the time, a lot of times your grouping is not going to be as good because there's this fine line between trying to aim super small at something you can't see versus just aiming at this super big silhouette where you don't have an actual spot as a reference to hold. So take a sticker... Um, that's equivalent to the size of something that you can shoot. For example, a lot of times with Joe, um, I have him warm up on a block target with his silverback. Um, he'll warm up on the block target so he's comfortable with that size dot. So I actually had some stickers made for him that he can put on his elk target. Um, also, we have that little bozo nose, I call it, that he can push into a target, um, which, is an eight, which is a size that he's comfortable with um, holding that's equal to the size of his pin when he's holding on it. So a lot of times if your pin is a lot bigger than what you're trying to shoot at, a lot of people have trouble with that and they freeze beneath the target because they're they're almost covering too much of what it is their brain is trying to see. So their brain freezes off that location. The other thing too is... Um, you know, try to try to gradually, as you're building comfort and confidence on that spot, try to gradually move further from that spot. So technically, you are minimizing the size of that spot as it's moving away from you. Um, the spot's moving, actually getting a little bit smaller. But when you do that, really try to focus on still keeping the amount of time it's taking you to make your shots the same. So in other words, if you're really comfortable on a four inch or three inch circle um, at 20 yards, take that same size circle, put it on a 3D target and start out shooting at 20 yards and focus on timing and rhythm. Get your pin on the target, finger to the trigger and tell yourself, okay, I'm gonna just continually count and and pull simultaneously until this happens and essentially you're gonna be able to hopefully i guess get to the point where you're able to make that shot happen within about seven seconds a lot of times once you engage your finger to the trigger your pin is on the target you're floating you're building pressure building pressure building pressure on the trigger um, those shots are going to go off anywhere from four to seven seconds so once you build up some time and please don't rush this just because you get it you start feeling comfortable in 10 minutes i would say do it for 10 days um, go ahead and move that target back five yards work on the same thing make sure that you're all of a sudden not starting to have your shots if your shots are starting to take 10 seconds 11 seconds that means you're already starting to focus on holding steadier more so than pulling through the shot. So that's an indicator that you're gonna to have to go back to step one. If you're able to continually pull, 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 and the shots are breaking, 
then do that again for another several days and then go ahead and come back a little bit further. What you'll find is you're probably going to need to have dots that are proportional to the distances that you do. And this is very similar to like the reading shoot. At the reading shoot, all of the circles that are on the targets, they're actual dots that are on the 3D targets, which is why a lot of people really like that style because they're not trying to aim at this small little 12 ring that they can't see. All of the circles are actually proportional to the NFA field faces and their relative distances. So as you go further in distance, that circle or your bullseye gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And the reason it does so is because the actual proportion of that circle to your pin will start to remain the same. So work on those things, uh, Stickman. Hopefully they help you out and... Uh, yeah, hopefully you work through it, man. Um, and again, that's kind of a reason why some of there's some good information out there relative to helping target panic, but there's also, um, for people who haven't experienced target panic on multiple levels of, you know, target panic, isn't just punching the trigger. It's not just freezing beneath the target. Um, there's multiple forms of this that are relative to different things. So all those certain aspects of, of that type of philosophy are true. Um, there's also gaps. So hopefully this helps you fill that gap. Um, so that question regarding high risk versus low risk, low risk was actually from a sandwich killer. Um, so sandwich killer... There, there's your question, man. Um, let's see here. Um, MG Hobbs 2 is saying, any recommendations for a good hunting slash 3D bow? Um, don't want to pour, pour a ton of money into different bows. Um, he's considering getting the RX-1 Ultra. Yeah, if you're, I was going to say, if you're someone who wants to hunt and shoot 3D, definitely don't look past just... Um, maybe slightly changing your arrows from or even your sight on a hunting model bow um, to kind of change it over to 3D. For example, you might want to just, um, instead of shooting arrows that have a longer fletch uh, with a screw-in point, maybe you go with an arrow that lets you shoot a shorter vein with a direct glue-in uh, point. Um, so, you know, there's some small things like that. Instead of shooting your hunting site, you might, you know, there's been times where you guys have seen me, um, switch to a single pin type, almost like a single pin, uh, with my Sherlock. And what I do is I'll just remove my five pin attachment. And again, they, this is an older Sherlock. So the, the new one will have this when it comes out, but it's not out yet. The first Sherlock the first version of the new Sherlock site that comes out will only have the scopes for the 3D guys. And then as we get closer to hunting season, the the um, pin attachment will become available. But uh, I'll remove my pins and put on a single housing scope. So, for example, when I go out to the Total Archery Challenge, I am actually going to shoot that with my hunting bow, not with my target bow, but I will most likely 
remove my my six pin or five pin attachment and I'll put on a single pin. Uh, I'll keep the same sight, but I'll just switch to a single pin up fiber um, just so that I don't have so many pins going on. Um, so uh, that's, you know, and, and if you favor a longer axle to axle bow, then arguably, um, you know, you're depending on your draw length, um, that longer axle to axle hunting bow, so to speak, you know, 34 inch hunting bow versus a 32 inch hunting bow or 35 inch hunting bow, sorry. Um, if you favor that longer, you could probably, you know, that longer length, you probably have just a little bit more um, shootability depending on you know, I guess your draw length, but, uh, yeah, just don't be afraid to take your hunting bow, maybe put a slightly longer stabilizer on that thing. Um, obviously take your quiver off, put on a single pin so that you can really focus on just making good clean shots on your 3d targets with a single aiming pin. I'm not a fan of a single pin for hunting scenarios. Um, and then, uh, then consider, you know, just slightly tweaking that arrow. Again, you could go to a shorter fletch, put a little bit more point weight in it, or a slightly larger shaft diameter. Um, for example, you know, if you're shooting, say you're shooting a, a six millimeter uh, axis for hunting, um, or, a, or a five millimeter full metal jacket, um, you could be able to switch over and maybe shoot like a light speed or something to where you can get um, a faster arrow uh, specific for that you know lighter faster arrow with a little bit more point weight a little shorter vein on the back um, and I think you'll be happy so uh, let me see here get close to everyone heading to work so I definitely don't want to go too long on this and that's actually the last of the questions that I had saved um, there's a few people who I have some shooting, um, shooting form, um, questions. And there were some people that I actually offered to look at their shooting form and giving, give them some, uh, some feedback. So those people I'm going to do, uh, on a later video podcast where I can actually, um, I've got a, um, a brand new uh, LED screen to where I'll be able to do some shooting analysis while podcasting. So that'll come later. But uh, other than that, a couple things I, I want to say quick before I jump off here. Um, I've actually got a really cool thing coming soon. Um, it's not available yet, but it will be coming uh, to, the, to the web store, uh, knockonarchery.com. Um, I've actually decided to make a an actual trial pack. So there's going to be a new, um, and this will be coming here with in a few weeks. So it's not available right now if you're listening on February 2nd. But if you're listening by the middle of February, it will be. Um, so I've decided to do um, a trial pack, an experiment pack. So essentially, you're going to get... 13 veins of each of the of the vein sizes and what this is going to do is this is going to allow you to experiment with a max stealth a max hunter or a pro max vein in different um, 
fletching configurations or just the fletching links. So this will be really cool. This will allow you guys to take, um, you know, essentially three arrows, fletch one of them with a max stealth, one of them with a max hunter, one of them with a pro hunter um, or a pro max, and you'll be able to uh, to shoot those and you'll be able to um, figure out which one might shoot a broadhead better. You know, maybe this one shoots your, your broadhead better. And then from there, you might be able to say, okay, you know, what if I take this match max stealth and I do a four fletch with it? Or what if I do a six fletch? Um, so essentially you're going to get in this, in this pack, you'll get 13 of each vein. So you'll be able to do um, two six fletches. You'll be able to do three four fletches. You'll be able to do four three fletches. You'll be able to fletch multiple arrows. But essentially, you're going to buy one pack. You're going to be able to try multiple things and figure out what vein you want, and then you'll be able to order that. Um, I guess to answer the question, knock to it, silverbacks, um, backordered again. Um, sorry about that. We're, again, we're doing everything we can. There's nothing I can do to, um, I, I mean, if I told you how many, how big the PO was for the releases that are out there, it would, it's not even worth saying. Um, we're just getting them as they come in. That last batch, um, we, we emailed, we never put them on the website for the general public. It would, the email just went out to everybody who had signed up for the notify me. Um, so silverbacks, Noctuits are being made again. Silverbacks are right in line behind those. Um, <clears throat> we should be we should be having the final few little internal parts for these two smooths. There was slight delay on those. Um, actually, had to recut an inner piece so that it fit this the index the inner index finger smoother. There's an internal piece that goes in that actually matches up on the inside of the index finger. Um, you'll know it once you see it, but um, I changed the actual hole size on the two smooth so that it would match the draw length better to the silverback and the knock to it. Um, so those could possibly be getting built um, early next week. My only fear is that Carter is going to be at the the Vegas shoot, and we will be at the um, Western Expo. So it may be that following week before we're able to get some two smooths available. But they are dangerously close, uh, danger close, I should say. Um, and then lastly, um, I did post for all of you out there who have seen me in my American flag silverback. Um, that's actually a skin, and we posted those, put those on the website yesterday. Uh, it's a silverback skin three-pack. Um, there's actually three skins. One is American flag version. The next one is a flow green diamond plate <clears throat> and black it's black and flow green diamond plate. And then the other one is a uh, carbon grid. And they're essentially a vinyl skin that you can put um, on your silverbacks. You got to make sure you clean them properly with alcohol. Make sure your hands are totally clean of oil. Make sure your release dries off properly and there's no debris on there. And you more or less just apply this vinyl sticker um, 
push it down really well all the way around let it sit overnight um, you don't really have to do that but I do it it's just because I'm paranoid and then uh, yeah it's pretty much just um, a vinyl decal that goes over the top so it's pretty cool and it'll just give you a uh, custom look on your silverback you get three of them for 20 bucks 19.99 actually so uh, check that out and then um, I don't know I think that's it I pretty much winged it so you guys um, by the time you get this you'll have an hour and a half podcast and all will be good I got some bow builds getting ready to crank on this weekend getting ready to build a uh, a 70 pound RX-1 for Mr. Rogan the Hulk is getting ready to get unleashed and I've got two of the three hurricane bows that came in all ultras and then I also have another ultra so um, and I think I have another RX-1 but tons of bows I'm going to start building those things and uh, appreciate the heck out of all you freaks so talk to you later knock on be sure to visit knockonarchery.com to see our entire line of trendy knock-on lifestyle clothing knockonarchery.com